welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. Sunday School by Jeremy Brown on June 5th, Lord's Day Service. Good morning, everyone. So we're going to kick off uh, the series on eschatology. Uh, So we've got four weeks this month. Um, I'll be doing two of the sessions. Uh, Today we're going to just introduce eschatology in general, um, give kind of an overview of the different positions and some uh, major topics in eschatology. Uh, Next week, week, Gage Crowder will be in here and give more of a... um, meta-narrative of scripture focused on uh, a view of optimism. And then uh, Chris Wiley will be back the third Sunday of this month, and he's going to do eschatology developed from the book of Acts. That should be interesting. And then the fourth week we'll come back and um, kind of fill in some holes and see where we get to today and and cover whatever else we we missed out on. So uh, what is eschatology? And why should we study it? Now, uh, some of you guys were at the Theology on Tap a few weeks ago, a month and a half ago, I guess, with Gary DeMar. Um, If you have not, if you were not there, the uh, video for that is available through the the church YouTube channel. It's worth going back and watching that again. Um, It'll definitely give a little more context for some of the things I'm not going to cover in here. So I'm going to try and not repeat too much of what he said. Um, But what is eschatology? So eschatology simply is the study of future things. Um, And eschatology is a term that can be used outside of uh, biblical theology. It's used in secular circles. Uh, Just what are our expectations for the future? Um, From the Christian side, we usually apply that term specifically to biblical prophecy. Um, Now, 25% of the Bible is prophecy. So... If we're going to have a thorough study of the Bible, that means we need to study and and try to understand what God is saying about the future. Um, Now, a lot of that prophecy is already fulfilled. Uh, Certainly, there were a lot of prophecies about the coming of Christ, the coming Messiah. Um, And then the question is, where do the prophecies about our future fit into all that? So, we'll try to jump into some of that. Um, Let's see. Oh, so Gary DeMar also, as part of the motivation for studying um, eschatology, pointed out that there's actually an apologetic issue to this question as well. So if, our, uh, if we have certain expectations about the future, it will affect what we do in the present. And not only that, there's a lot of scripture passages that say, here are the things that are happening soon. I, behold, I am coming soon. Uh, Jesus, come quickly. And there are actually uh, atheists and others who have used that as a criticism of the Bible to say, hey, all of these uh, Christians thought that Jesus was coming back really soon. Some of them clearly said before all of these people are dead, within their generation. But he didn't, so the Bible must be wrong. Uh, So how do we answer that sort of a question? so proper understanding of how these verses fit into an understanding of Scripture 
um, is important for the apologetic side. Also, just in terms of how it affects our day-to-day uh, -day life in the here and now is really interesting as well. Uh, when I was growing up, I knew people that were very much on the pessimistic side, uh, expecting a great tribulation to happen anytime. Uh, the world was getting worse and worse, and they, they were certain it was, you know, we were about to hit the tribulation. And they were extremely fearful. I mean, they would not have anything to do with politics. They would not stick their neck out. They wouldn't go protest anything because, hey, the world is going to go to hell in a handbasket anyway. Why should I have any input in this? Um, other people, you know, expecting that the world is coming to an end fairly soon, would say, well, building major, building politics and art and science and all these other things is not really important because if the world is going to end in the next 20 years or so, these things that are built for long-term uh, future um, unfolding is irrelevant because it's not going to be around that long. What we really need to focus on is just getting people saved as quickly as possible and forget all the politics and these other things. And, and this was kind of what led Gary DeMar into uh, focusing on eschatology because he was trying to teach God and government and try to encourage Christians to get involved in politics and by and large he was finding they weren't because they expected the world to just continue to decay and there was no purpose in that. So uh, demonstrating a, an optimistic eschatology, ex expectations that we're going to be around for a significant time period means that there's an importance to building culture to building politics, building uh, a Christian view of science and education and architecture, you know, structures that are going to withstand or still going to be standing hundreds of years from now. Uh, so that, you know, if we have those expectations, it's going to affect what we do in the here and now. Um, from a personal standpoint, um, eschatology has really kind of pretty heavily influenced my development, my theological development. So. Um, quick personal story, when I, uh, my parents, before I was born, um, they were very nominal Christians early on, and then uh, sometime when they were in college, uh, ended up becoming saved, ended up in a relatively charismatic type church. Um, I was born up in Maryland in 1980. They were in a, basically a charismatic association of several churches up there. Around 1982, when the election was going on, there was a big prophecy that was going on, um, going around in their circles, and this t is tied in with Hal Lindsey's Late Great Planet Earth, um, some of the other prof uh, books that were published saying uh, why 88 reasons why Christ will return in 1988, and you know some of these others, and there was a prophecy going around their circles that said they absolutely had to get all of these political figures elected. If they failed to get Christian people into government then the, you know, Maryland was going to head down the tubes and it was going to lead the rest of the nation with it and we were heading into the tribulation. And so my dad was, and several other people were very heavily associated with all the political campaigning and they were out raising money. They had, he said, like two or three times as much money and manpower and support for all of these Christian candidates. And he remembers coming home um, or you know, being ready to head back out the door for more door-to-door uh, -door campaigning, and he said, I would be standing there on the stairs saying, Dad, please stay home. And he was like, no, I have to do this for you. And 
you know, if, if you pay much attention to politics, you know that Maryland today is certainly not the most conservative state. <laughs> uh, despite all of their efforts, he said every single one of those candidates lost. And he just went into a political, or just a kind of a theological tailspin, and somehow ended up in a Christian bookstore that had, and, and walked out with five points of Calvinism, and Lorraine Bettner's um, uh, Eschatology of Hope, and some other books about post-millennialism and Calvinism and stuff, stuff that he'd never heard of. And anyway, that uh, kind of changed the trajectory of our family growing up. And then years later, in the, we were still in the charismatic church, post-millennial and Calvinist in the charismatic church, which was an interesting fit. Uh, but nonetheless, my dad and I, when I was a senior in high school, actually taught a Sunday school on eschatology in the charismatic church. And it went over about as well as you might expect. Um, <laughs> and so we, um, that kind of, you know, the, the response to that kind of ended up pushing us into leaving the church to find reformed churches. And um, so I like to say Gary DeMar got us kicked out of the charismatic church. But <laughs> um, in any case, so the eschatology has really kind of shaped my um, coming to reformed thinking. Um, now, I've talked all about this eschatology uh, or mentioned that there's different views. Um, I'm not going to assume anything about w uh, where people are at with this. I'm going to start by defining some of the major uh, positions. Now, you'll find the different eschatology positions, the major views, um, are all named after the millennium. So there's premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial. Uh, so where does that come from? Well, so there's really only one place in the Bible where it mentions where it uses that term, or where that term references. So that's Revelation 20, verses 1 through 6. Let me just go ahead and read that to give you some context of where we're at. And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil, and Satan, and bound him a thousand years, and cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal upon him, that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed for a, for a little season. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads nor in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years." But the reign of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. So millennium literally means thousand years. Um, and so when we talk about millennium, we're talking about this thousand year reign of Christ. So when does that occur? And where is, we, we all uh, confess with the creeds, Christ will come again to judge the living and the dead. So when does Christ's second coming occur relative to the millennium? Does it happen before or after or something else? And so that's where the, um, the different eschatology positions get their names. Um, so all orthodox views of eschatology and I'll make a comment on this later, but all Orthodox Christian views um, believe that uh, whatever the millennium is, 
it will conclude with a final judgment and followed by a new heavens and a new earth. So that's the first thing. All of these different views are going to agree that there's a millennium, there's something that we call the millennium, and then Christ will, the final judgment will occur at the end of that period, and then there will be the new heavens and the new earth. Now, dispensationalism uh, is the most common position in American evangelical Christianity. Um, this is the, the position that you would read in uh, the Left Behind series, Tim LaHaye, and all these other prophecy books. Most, most churches, when they say they're going to have a prophecy conference, they're talking about dispensational prophecy. Uh, so what is this position? Well, it's, it's a belief that the world is getting worse and worse over time. And at some point, as, once the world gets so bad, Jesus will come in some sort. He will rapture out his church. And so the, second, the first and second Thessalonians where it talks about we will meet him in the air. Um, that's where this comes into play. There will be a rapture of the church away from earth. And everyone that is not Christian will go through a seven-year tribulation period. And it will be uh, the worst period that the, the world has ever experienced. Um, and it'll be uh, presided over by the beast or the antichrist, man of lawlessness, what have you. Um, there's different terms that they'll use um, depending on the exact view. They're, they may be the exact same person or different people. Uh, but those are major figures in this, in this time period. The temple will have been rebuilt before that time, and the temple will have to get destroyed again. Um, and we'll talk about where that comes from. Um, and then after that seven years, there will be a big battle of Armageddon. Jesus will come and defeat the beast and the Antichrist, a big, uh, big battle. And then Jesus will then proceed to Jerusalem, set up a physical throne in Jerusalem, and will reign on that throne for 1,000 years, a literal 1,000 years. And at the end of that time, then the uh, Satan will be loose to deceive the nations again, and there will be a, a short Rebellion culminating in the final judgment. Key thing here, the church is not present for that millennial reign. So the Christians are raptured out and they stay in heaven during this entire thousand-year period. The dispensational view is very heavily focused on Jewish thinking, on Zionism. So it's, it's a really, the Jews themselves take prominent position in this whole view. Um, in fact, dispensationalism is actually a much bigger uh, theological position than just the eschatology side of it. Now, the eschatology is what's most visible, but really what dispensationalism says is that God works in different ways with his people in different time periods. So they have the pre-fall time period, that's one dispensation, and then the post-fall time period. The judges is a completely different dispensation. Um, the Davidic king, uh, that rule is a separate dispensation, and God works in different ways during those periods. And in fact, there was a dispensation that ended at the time of the cross, and all of these other ones pre preceding that were all focused on the Jews, and then we are in a current dispensation called the church age. And this is completely separate from the, all the dispensations that, uh, from the Old Testament. We're in the church age. We're New Testament Christians. And then at some point in the future, when Jesus comes back, he'll reestablish his throne um, in some versions of it. 
we'll have the temple rebuilt and sacrifices, animal sacrifices happening again. Um, and there's different variations on that. But in any case, it's the church is kind of a parenthetical side point to what the main theme of, um, of God's work in the earth is meant to be. So the, the church, in, in fact, some, uh, some dispensational writers even refer to the church age as this unforeseen gap, as if what's happening now was not foreseen by God in his plan A, and we're in a plan B right now because the Jews rejected Christ when he came and died, and they, didn't, they rejected him after he rose again, and therefore we've got some sort of gap until they receive their, the fullness of their punishment, and, uh, and God can uh, restart the clock, as it were. Um, obviously, this is directly counter to covenant theology, which is what we talk about from the reform circles, where uh, God's work throughout the world is a series of unfolding and expanding covenants. So it's not that God works in completely different ways, but there's new covenant promises and covenant blessings that are contiguous with what came before. So God's work from a reform perspective is a continuous unfolding and we have continuity with the Old Testament. Uh, let's see. Um, so let me, just as a brief note, where does this gap come from? Now, um, the book of Daniel factors in pretty heavily in here. And let me see if I can... So Daniel chapter 9, uh, starting. Daniel chapter 9 is one of the key uh, passages used in, um, in understanding uh, the, how these prophecies unfold throughout history. Uh, in, starting in verse 24, oh, and just for the context of this, this is Daniel in the reign of uh, Darius, and this is, Daniel has been in the Babylon, or was in the Babylonian, or took away, was taken away with the people to Babylon almost 70 years earlier. And right at the beginning of chapter 9, Daniel says, I was praying because, um, let's see, let me just go ahead and read that. Uh, in the first year of the reign uh, of, of Darius, I, Daniel, understood by books the number of the years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. So Daniel, there's the, the prophecies in Jeremiah that says the people will be in captivity for 70 years and Daniel's seeing this and, you know, first year of Darius and incidentally this, he's praying desperately because he's seeing that there's still a whole lot of wickedness and refusal to repent in uh, among the Jews in captivity, and he's praying, God, please don't extend this. Let's, you know, are, are you still going to restore your people uh, at the end of the 70 years? And incidentally, this, these intense prayers are what happens. That's the context of Daniel 6, where he gets thrown in the lion's den. Um, he's praying desperately. He's going up to the window three times a day because, you know, he's worried about what's about to happen. Um, anyway, so he has a vision from God that, so there's 70 years to return the people to Israel, but um, 
the actual full restoration is not going to be at that time. He says, 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, and to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the prince, shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. So it's 69 weeks from the command to rebuild Jerusalem uh, until the Messiah shall come. Uh, the street shall be built again and the wall even in uh, troublous times. After threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. And the end thereof shall be with a flood and unto the war desolations are determined. And he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. And in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate, even unto the consummation. And that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. So 69 weeks until the coming of the Messiah. And as it turns out, if you take the, the command from Cyrus to Nehemiah to go back and rebuild the, um, the city and the temple, uh, you can... If you use, if you assume prophetic years that are 360 days, it actually comes out almost perfectly to when Jesus is um, 69 weeks of years, so 69 times 7 years until the time Jesus was on earth. Uh, and so I think most eschatology positions accept that part of it. It's this last 7, this last week, that, where the disagreement comes in. So it talks about, in the midst of that, sacrifices and oblations should be cut off. Um, it talks about desolations and abominations and so forth. So the dispensational view is there's a gap between that 69th week and that 70th week. And that seven-year, that, seven that week, is pushed way into the future, and that is our great tribulation. That's the first place that we find the great tribulation in Scripture. Um, the... I'll come back to this from the or from the, the reformed perspective and see where uh, where we would fall on that later. Uh, but th this is where this starts from. Also, Matthew 24 is the other big passage where um, where Jesus is prophesying um, there'll be earthquakes and wars and rumors of wars. Um, he mentions the abomination spoken of by Daniel, the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel, um, and so forth. And so that that along with this passage, and then there's a brief reference in the book of Revelation that talks about the Great Tribulation. All of these are kind of conflated as a single thing, uh, Great Tribulation that's sometime in the future. Um, so, so that's kind of dispensationalism, roughly in a nutshell, uh, maybe a couple of nuts. Uh, the history of dis uh, dispensationalism, though, is kind of interesting. So this was not... You will not find anything, any writings about dispensationalism or dispensational theology in any of the early church fathers. You won't find it written of or spoken of all the way through the Reformation and even further. Um, dispensationalism as a theological position was unheard of prior to 1830. This is a very new theological position. Uh, John Nelson Darby who's one of the founders of the Plymouth Brethren over in Ireland and Scotland, 
um, helped to, he took classic premillennialism, which we'll talk about in just a minute, and developed, uh, added kind of this um, Zionist focus to it, as well as uh, the, the concept of dispensational work, outworkings of, of God, um, and developed this whole dispensational theology. Uh, now he brought it, he and a few others brought it to the U.S. in the 1840s through the 1860s. Uh, it was popularized by Cyrus Schofield, you may have heard of, with the Schofield Reference Bible. And that was a pretty popular Bible. In, it was published in 1909. Um, it was used quite a bit throughout the, um, through the Americas. Uh, and it had a lot of, or it kind of, in the margin notes, it explained how all of these passages fit within a dispensational system. Um, later on, you may have heard the, of the theologian Charles Ryrie, who taught at Dallas Theological Seminary and Tyndale Theological Seminary. Um, he um, developed this further, and then, of course, also Hal Lindsey, uh, Late Great Planet Earth, published in 1971, and John Walvoord, who published quite a few books from 60s up into um, maybe as late as 2000. Uh, but in any case, a very new theological position running very counter to a lot of the historic understandings of how God works in the world. And the overall position is highly pessimistic, and it's also a futurist, what we call a futurist position. So most of the prophecies in the Bible happen far in the future. Uh, Premillennialism, it's um, kind of a significantly scaled-down version of dispensationalism. So this, uh, it's also called Kiliism, which comes from the Greek word for thousand. Um, in this view, Jesus does return to earth, to a, and creates or sets up a physical, literal throne and reigns for a thousand years. And then at the end of that thousand years, uh, we have the final judgment and so forth. So from a very basic perspective, it looks kind of like dispensationalism. Uh, premillennialism does not emphasize a rapture. Um, it, does not, it does not focus on Zionism. It basically... It assumes that the tribulation, whatever that is, will happen in the future. The church will go through it, um, and then will participate in the thousand-year reign of Christ. Uh, the world continues through all of that. No one's going to be shifted out to a different location during any of those periods. Uh, the millennium is a literal 1,000-year period. The kingdom is literal, and Christ is physically present on earth during this period. Um, there, in this view, typically there is a seven-year period of tribulation right immediately prior to that second coming leading into the millennium, uh, but no rapture. Um, and this, this view of eschatology was held by some of the early church fathers. So Irenaeus was clearly premillennial. Pre Justin Martyr appears to have also been premillennial. Um, but he also mentions that there were multiple, multiple other views on what this millennial reign looks like. So premillennialism was early. It was an early view, but it, wasn't, it was clearly not the only position on what the, the future would look like and where the uh, millennial reign would occur. Premillennialism in general is relatively pessimistic. It can be somewhat optimistic, but... Um, Generally, the, the best case for a, for a classic premillennialist is the world kind of continues as it is, uh, maybe getting a little bit worse until we have a, a period of tribulation 
leading to Christ's final or second coming. Um, again, it's a futurist position, so the prophecies happen in the future. One note, so dispensationalism obviously takes that and adds a whole bunch of other layers to it. Uh, now, interestingly, dispensationalism and premillennialism both, um, both have an issue with the Apostles' Creed. So the Apostles' Creed, when we confess the Apostles' Creed, we say we believe that Jesus Christ will come again to judge the living and the dead. And in both of these premillennial views, Christ comes again to establish a 1,000-year reign, and then the judgment of the living and the dead happens much later. So it's a little bit difficult to make that fit with the, the classic creeds, and, and this is actually one um, argument that Kiliism, or classic premillennialism, was not a large a dominant view in the early church, because if this is what the creed is confessing, the kind of the um, the agreed upon synopsis of Christianity, and premillennialism was the dominant view, you would expect them to say, "We believe that Jesus Christ will come again to establish His kingdom," and that's not what we confess. Amillennialism, so third position uh, in amillennialism. There is no actual millennial reign. Uh, so we are in the thousand, year, the thousand years now. Christ started reigning uh, around the time of the cross and continues all the way through until the end of things. When he, when he comes again, he'll come again to judge the living and the dead. Millennium is more of kind of a historical representation of how Christ works in the world. The tribulation is not a literal um, seven-year period. The tribulation is kind of a, a metaphorical thing about the suffering that the church and God's people will go through throughout history uh, in the amillennial view. And so Christ is reigning over the kingdom of God now, but in the amillennial view, there's also the kingdom of man. So there's a kingdom of God, kingdom of man, a two-kingdom view, and uh, and actually, my, my previous pastor is definitely a, a strong amillennialist. And he, he taught a series of Sunday schools basically explaining why we shouldn't be so focused on trying to Christianize the world. Because that's the, city, that's the, uh, the kingdom of man. We need to build the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is going to get better and more pure. And the kingdom of man is going to get worse and worse. And the conflict between them will grow. And then at some point, Jesus will come again. So in general, this is somewhat of a, uh, a pessimistic view. Um, we are not called on in this view to Christianize the world, to develop Christian institutions necessarily. Um, this can be somewhat of an escapist view that, you know, at some point we're going to go to the new heavens anyway, and, you know, what's, in, what's happening in the current earth has no bearing on, the, you know, the future state. So... It's going to decay. We can do what we can right now, but we don't need to set our hopes on this world. Um, so the position is generally pessimistic. Um, it's historicist. So the, uh, these prophetic things are not future. They're not past. They are kind of unfolding throughout history. Uh, and this position was also present in the early church. Um, Dionysius is one of them that clearly expresses an, um, an essentially amillennial view and Augustine is another one who really develops this and sometimes is called the father of uh, amillennialism. 
Finally, getting to the fourth position is postmillennialism. Um, in this position, the millennial reign was the millennium. The millennial reign is a real thing, but not necessarily a literal 1,000 years. It was inaugurated at, roughly speaking, at Christ's ascension to the throne of God. Um, and I'll read a passage on that in a second. But and from the earthly view, um, that's the inauguration is Pentecost. So today, being Pentecost is kind of a an, uh, interesting time to to be discussing this. But uh, Pentecost is the start of Christ's reign on earth for a thousand years. And we'll talk about what that means in a little bit. Uh, let me go back to Daniel 7. Uh, starting in verse 9. Uh, and this is one of Daniel's visions. He said, I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was like a fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousand thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set, and the books were opened. I beheld then, because of the voice of the great words which the horn spake, I beheld even till the beast was slain and his body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As concerning the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days. And they brought him near before him, and there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed. So, what this is saying... This is talking about Jesus' ascension. So this, this happens shortly after, or right after he ascends from earth. It says he ascends to the Ancient of Days. He ascends, he comes with the clouds, not down to earth, but up to the Ancient of Days to sit at, uh, in the throne, ruling over all, of, all the world. So what Daniel is prophesying is Jesus doesn't come down to earth to set up his throne. He comes up to, into heaven, and his throne is established there. And so that is, uh, we take that to be what happens at Ascension Day, and Pentecost happening shortly thereafter um, is the establishment of Christ's eternal reign. Um, so his throne that will, not, will never end. Uh, and so he will... He will reign until the end of time, um, and he'll judge. At which point he will judge. He'll come again to judge the living and the dead. Um, in this view, the millennial reign is a gradually expansion, or a gradual expansion of the gospel, in fulfillment of the Great Commission. So when Jesus said, "Go into all the worlds and make disciples of all the nations," in the post-millennial view, he's given us a command, and we're to carry out his command. We're to go and make disciples of all, the, not make disciples or converts from the nations, but make disciples of the nations. Literally, disciple the nations. So we're called to go into the world and bring all things, we're his ambassadors, to expand his kingdom throughout the whole world. Um, I won't 
read it right now, but Daniel chapter 2, you may remember uh, one of the earlier prophecies in Daniel where the king has this vision of this great statue with the head of gold and the chest of silver um, and uh, iron and clay. Anyway, there's a big statue that represents four different kingdoms, the Babylonian Empire, the Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, and the Roman Empire. And it talks about the rock that was cut without hands that crushes the feet of the statue, grinds it into dust, and grows and grows until it fills the whole earth. It becomes a great mountain that fills the whole earth. And this is, you know, Daniel says this represents the future messianic reign. It's going to start off as a small rock that's going to crush the Roman Empire, come at the time of the Roman Empire, and then grow and fill the whole world. Um, also, let's see... Let me just read a couple passages from Matthew that kind of fit with this as well. So Matthew chapter 13, uh, starting in verse 31. Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like to a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is the greatest among herbs, and becometh a tree, so that the birds of the air come and lodge in the branches thereof. Another parable spake he unto them, The kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal, till the whole were leavened. So, the prophecies about the kingdom of God are never about a sudden fulfillment of it, going from nothing into a full kingdom. The way the Bible speaks about the kingdom of God is something that starts small, and gradually grows and grows and grows. One other that I want to just want to go ahead and read because I want to make some other references to it in a little bit. Um, the wheat and the tares. Uh, so the kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field, but while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. So the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, didst thou not sow good seed in thy fields? From whence then hast it tares? And he said to them, An enemy hath done this. The servant said unto him, Wilt thou then uh, that we go and gather them up? But he said, Nay, lest while ye gather up the tares, ye root up the, also the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, Gather ye together first the tares, and bind them in bundles and burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. So, the wheat and the tares, so we have, you know, a farmer sows a, a field full of wheat, and the enemy comes and sow, sows weeds or tares in the field, and his servants say, hey, should we take the, sh should we go and get rid of all of these weeds so that the wheat can grow properly? And he said, no, 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 if you do that, it might destroy the wheat. Let both of them grow. So we have, from the amillennial perspective, this is, the two kingdom view. You have the, the tares and the wheat growing side by side. From a post-millennial view, at the, end of, at the harvest day, at the end of all things, you have a wheat field with weeds still in it. So it's not a perfected kingdom. It's not, uh, it's not brought completely into fullness, but it's, it's generally a wheat field, not a weed field and a wheat field side by side. Also, notice what happens at the end of time. He said, go out and gather up the tares and cast them into the fire. Then bring in the wheat. 
So at the end of this, we have not a rapture of the church, we have a rapture of the sinners. Or, or the wicked, rather. Um, those that refuse God. So uh, the general narrative of Scripture is a, a gradual unfolding of the kingdom um, in the post-millennial viewpoint. And the, the view is one of optimism, that we will succeed, that we, with the power of the Holy Spirit, we can succeed in what God has called us to do. Um, notice when we say this is optimistic and the kingdom is gradually growing, it doesn't necessarily require that we have a continuous monotonic growth. Things are always getting better. Uh, I've heard it likened to the stock market. You know, the general trend is up, but you're going to have significant retracements. You'll have periods of recession and depression followed by periods of great growth. And we see that throughout history. Um, we see periods of rebellion against God, but then we also see periods where his word and his spirit unfold in, in amazing ways. Uh, let's see. Let me also mention there is another position, Oh, just as a side note. So the, the post-millennial position where we believe that a lot of prophecies was already fulfilled uh, so in the post-millennial position, the, uh, the tribulation uh, happened in 70 A.D. And we'll talk more about what that means um, and why that's, that date is so critical. But the, uh, the tribulation led up to 70 A.D. Uh, with the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple at that time. Uh, the Romans came in and completely destroyed and obliterated Jerusalem following a rebellion of the people. Uh, so all, a lot of these prophetic scriptures, Matthew 24, uh, the Daniel passage about the tribulation, a lot, a lot, not all, but a lot of Revelation is referring to that time period. So the, basically roughly the 40 years between when Jesus died and was raised and uh, up, leading up until the fall of Jerusalem. There is a view, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but just to make you aware of it. Oh, backing up. So the, the idea that things have already been fulfilled in the past, past tense, is called a praetorist view. So praetorist meaning past tense. There is another position called full praetorism or hyper praetorism. Um, this is a, an idea that everything in scripture, all the prophecies, were already fulfilled. They were fulfilled in 70 AD. There is nothing to look forward to. We are in the new heavens and the new earth. Um, I don't find that very exciting, that <laughs> um, this is as good as it gets. Uh, and really, this is a rejected view throughout Orthodox Christianity because we confess that Jesus will come again. There's a future second coming, uh, and this view would deny that. So uh, it's a minority position. It's primarily within quasi-reform circles, um, but it's largely not accepted as uh, Orthodox Christianity. Okay. Figure out what I want to do in the next 10 minutes or so. <laughs> uh, let's talk about millennium briefly. Uh, so a thousand, so it talks about the thousand year reign of Christ. A thousand is not necessarily literal. So uh, in uh, 
there's a couple of other places in scripture where it uses the word thousand in a figurative sense. So uh, it talks about in Exodus, my, um, let's see. says, thou shalt not bow down to them, uh, thyself to them, nor serve them, for I, the Lord, thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. So uh, another translation has, my blessings will be upon you to the thousandth generation. So if we're going to say thousand has to be literal in Revelation, why shouldn't thousand also be here in this, uh, this Exodus passage? I actually was talking to a dispensational um, guy at one point and said, well, because of this passage, thousand generations, you know, minimum period between generations is about 20 years, so 20,000 years from the time of Exodus, so we probably still have another 15,000 years or so to go. And he looked at me and said, I reject that wholeheartedly. <laughs> um, anyway. Also, in Psalm 50, it says, uh, for every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle upon the thousand hills. So, thousand meaning uh, all of the hills. God owns all the cattle, not just the first 1,000 and the 1,001 hill is Satan's or something. Um, in the Bible, there's a lot of numbers that have different symbolic meanings. So, seven is used to represent the fullness of quality, or a perfect number. So seven weeks of creation for the fullness of creation. Uh, in Revelation, you've got seven churches to represent the, the church in the world. You've got seven angels, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven plagues. So seven is the number of perfection. Ten is the fullness of quantity, the totality of, the completeness of. So there's ten commandments to sum up to complete the law. There's ten plagues on Egypt to complete the judgment and destruction of Egypt. Um, we also see 10 showing up in a bunch of the Jesus parables. So 10 in three dimensions. 10 times 10 times 10 gets you to 1,000. So the fullness, the totality of throughout all of time. So 1,000 meaning Jesus will reign until the end of all things, the end of time. That's what we say by uh, he'll reign for 1,000 years. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com.